request for that. Uh, computer crashed on me. Um, probably running too many things at once, so uh, without you know, the graphics, we'll just continue to move forward. I just got to the introduction where we're talking about the whole cast of Christmas and how we have journeyed through Advent looking at the lives of one or two individuals. But today I'd like to do something different. Um, today I would like to uh, look at the group of individuals or the whole group of individuals in the biblical account. For example, first we have Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph. We have the young and the old. You have the prophets and the covenants of Israel's past and the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah and the new spiritual future, the separation and death of the past and the restoration and life now present. The shepherds and the angels, then you have the beings of earth and heaven, the physical and the spiritual, and as they head to the stable, there's humans as well as animals, the created created beings, the creation. And it's here where we pick up Matthew's account of the Magi. Now, who are these mysterious visitors from the East? We're not entirely sure. What we do know is that they followed a star for a long period of time. And uh, they followed the star to find and worship the promised Messiah. Now, the Magi are, health, are wealthy and uh, noble men, in contrast to the shepherds. And it's even more uh, showing us that God has demonstrated how he is bridging even more divides in the birth of his son. See, the Magi, as I just mentioned, are the esteemed opposite to the lowly shepherds in human structures. But importantly, remember, they are not Jews, they are Gentiles. Their inclusion in Jesus' birth story echoes the radical idea that the Christ, the Messiah, brings salvation and restoration to all the people. There are no Pharisees, no Sadducees, or no spiritual VIPs at Jesus' birth. Instead, there were these travelers, these men from the east, a different race, who received an audience with King Herod, who are willing to disrupt their lives with a great journey, who humble themselves to worship the baby of a poor, unassuming couple in the countryside. The cast of characters God assembles for the arrival of his son on earth is far from the expectation any of us would have imagined even farther from the expectations of the people of that time, who lived and breathed within that culture and its divisions. To us, it may seem like a ragtag bunch of people, but to them, it was downright blasphemous that the Messiah would be so lowly and associated with a full spectrum of unclean humanity and creation. Could Jesus have united more divisions simply by being born? Partly, he is grouping them together at his birth, and doing so, God revealed things, several things about his love. Number one, we can learn that Christ is love embodied, and we see a description of God's love in 1 John chapter 4, 
starting in verse 7. Read along with me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in God. One who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This is an exhortation, an appeal, an urging for Christians to love Christians. Although the importance here is not to... Uh, not to leave out non-Christians, they're not to be excluded, but Paul was, I mean, excuse me, John is writing to believers. And the basis, the foundation of underpinning for this love is God and his love. In fact, because love is from God, it flows from or out of God and has God as its spring and source. Furthermore, all who love have been born of God. Some argue this refers to everyone, Christian or non-Christians, having this type of love. Because everyone is created in the image of God, this common grace, if you will, will allow everyone to have some type of imperfect love. But look at the text. The text states that everyone who loves is born of God and what and knows God. So it's referring to a particular kind of love that is only found in those who have been regenerated or reborn, saved, given our lives to Christ. Now, the perfect tense of the word born would include the initial rebirth, or the when you get saved, you come to Christ, and the continued effects this has on your life. You continue to grow in the knowledge of God. See, it's not in our ability to love that causes a new birth. That's not what it is. Our ability to love does not cause that. But it's our ability to love flows out of our regeneration in Christ. In other words, that love now comes to me and flows out of being saved. In other words, I cannot give what I do not have. I'm incapable of loving in that matter without first receiving the love of God myself. Look what he says next in the text. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. See, the absence of love in the life of an individual proves that he or she does not know God. Therefore, they're a stranger to God. He or she never could even begin to have a relationship with God. If they don't have love, there's never a time they could have legitimately said, I have come to know God or I've known God. Why is that? If I do not love, I can't know God. Because why? Look at the text. For God is love. To know the love of God is to manifest it. 
or to make it obvious in our lives. Without this display, demonstration, or expression of the love of God, we cannot possibly know or even have known God. Because love is not some abstract, intangible attribute or quality, but has a sovereign living God who is the source of all love, who himself loves. And because God's very nature is love, mercy and goodness flow from him. Like a beautiful river, as sunlight radiates from the sun, love, real love, has an ultimate source and origin in God. It is not an abstract concept, but concrete action. It says next that he has sent his only begotten son into the world. And we read back in verse 8 that we are to love first, because love is the very nature of God. To him we belong and to him we are partakers. And because of the incredible manner in which God's love was displayed, as we just read, that God sent his Son so that we might live through him. That verb live implies that those to whom the Son was sent were in a condition of spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Son's mission, Jesus' mission, was to impart life to us. This life only occurs through him since he's the only mediator between God and man, the only true mediator between God and man. First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. John goes on to say, And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation. See, the purpose of sending the Son is not the incarnation, but the atonement. God sent his Son to die. And furthermore, we know that our love is not primary in getting this done. It's God's love. Death of Christ is exalted, not his birth. In our natural condition, we do not love God, nor his Son whom he has sent. But clearly and amazingly, God loved us. And what an incredible and fathomable love it is that he sent his son and sent him to die for us. Amazing love, as Chris Tyler wrote in his, his hymn, Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? You see, love is always generated by actions. It's not abstract. It's never complacent or static. The marvelous act of sending his son was prompted by God's love, not our love for God. Therefore, the sending of his son was both the revelation of his love and the very essence of love itself. All our love is but a reflection of God's love and a response to it. The origin of love lies beyond human effort and initiative. Left to ourselves, we would not love God. We would hate him and oppose him. And it took his boundless, sacrificial love to break our hearts of stone and bring us to him. Now he lays out this illustration to get God is love. How did God demonstrate his love? Sending his son to die for us for our atonement. Then he turns again and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us this way, we also ought to love one another. The love of God has shown us the motive for us responding to others properly. 
And the use of the word ought infers that there is an inner motivation and obligation to love others. And this cannot be postponed for any reason. It's one that we rightly owe. If God so loved me and sent his son, then I am to love you and all others. See, loving God and loving others cannot be divorced. And we see that in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus asked, telling them what the first and foremost commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And the second one, he said, is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. And since God has loved us in this way, in such a concrete way, then we have no option to do the same, but to do the same goes on to write that no one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us. No human being has ever seen God. We can never look upon God as sinful, finite creatures. We would die. We cannot look upon him. But the love of God can be seen in us, or God can be seen in us, when we demonstrate his love to others. Now, there's a conditional statement in here, if leaves a possibility of not fulfilling the condition. Not everyone who professes to be a child of God will manifest his love. And it's God's rightful expectation that he expects us to demonstrate his love to others, that others may see him through our love that we demonstrate to them. Because after all, what Christmas is all about, he loved us so much that he sent his son into the world. And he gives us some assurance here. He says, by this we know that we abide in him because he has given us the spirit. And as believers in Christ, we have the enjoying spirit. We need to be conscious of the, re of the Holy Spirit because that's how he lives in us. He remains in us. He lives in us. A person loves because God has come to dwell within him or her. So when I receive that love of God through Christ, Christ is the embodiment of love, that gives me the ability now to turn around and to love other people. It's the knowledge of this indwelling spirit that gives us assurance of our membership in the family of God as well. In Romans 8.16, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The text goes on to say, whoever confesses, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Is a confession of public conviction and acknowledgement that reveals an inward commitment that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that I believe in him, I trust in him, not just as Savior of the world, but Savior of my life, who was sent from the Father. It's not just a statement regarding the status of Jesus as the Son, it is a confession that results in a reception of new life and a commitment to obedient trust. Obedience gives the outward evidence that I have fellowship with God. See, faith and love are the fruit and the evidence of one who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So we walk through that text very quickly and briefly. But we have the love of God within us. We cannot say we love God and don't lie to other people. We cannot divorce the two. If we have the love of God joining within us through the Holy Spirit, then we are to demonstrate that love, manifest that love, 
in our walk, how we treat each other. Because you see, the second thing we learn is that love is how people will know that we are disciples of Christ. So we first, he's revealed that his love in Christ, Christ is the embodiment of love. We learn that love is how people will know that we're disciples of Christ. It's what defines us, it marks us and characterizes us, or at least it should. Now the church has not always done a good job of this. We as a church body sometimes don't do a good job of this. It's easy for us to point our fingers back at church history or to other people and find faults with them. Things that make us cringe and anger. But we must look at ourselves as well. Because none of us is perfect. As individuals and corporately as a church, we must be able to look within ourselves. Let God examine us as individuals and as a church to see where we're falling short. And especially in this season of Christmas, in this year of 2020, we can find many opportunities to demonstrate and to let the love of God flow through us. Especially in our culture, there are many people that need to have that love. Many people need to know that they're loved and they're cared for. People need to hear that God loves them, but they also need to see and see it demonstrated that indeed we love you as God's people. So love shows other people that we're indeed disciples of Christ. And you remember Jesus' words, people will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for each other. And we are to love as he does. And thirdly, love empowers us to cross borders. These are divided times. We look at our country and our culture, our world and our people. We've been divided. It seems the us and thems have been running very high as of late. And throughout history, the world has been filled with wars, thunder, and oppression. There have always been the weak and the powerful, the haves and the have-nots. There has always been a us versus them. And that's why Jesus' teaching is so radical. This is why God's love is so radical. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. You have heard that it is said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus did not only tear down the walls of the vision at his birth, he continuously reached across a chasm of separation and exclusion. He befriended a tax collector, a man named Matthew, to invite him to be one of his disciples. He spoke with a Samaritan woman at the well. When he did that, he broke a couple of societal taboos at once because Jews did not associate with Samaritans, much less Jewish men did not talk to women like this in public. And probably one of his greatest teachings on love, and we talked about the first and foremost commandment, God, you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And somebody asked, well, who is my neighbor? And that's where we get the story of the Good Samaritan. You can find it in Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through 37. And basically, you all know the story. There's a man going down the Jericho Road, a road that is known to be treacherous, a road that people are usually robbed and mugged on. 
He goes down that road and he is mugged and he is beaten almost to death. And a priest comes by and sees him laying on the road. He doesn't just simply walk by. He goes way on the other side and passes by. Then a Levite comes by, sees the guy laying on the side of the road, does not stop to see how he's doing does not simply pass by, but goes on the other side of the road. Both these individuals go way out of their way to, to pass by. They didn't want to even see that he was there. And then a Samaritan sees him laying there, goes over there, bandages him up, takes him to an end, tells the guy, watch over him, and I'll come back to settle the account. But you do whatever is necessary. But you have to realize, back in those days, Jews did not like Samaritans, and Samaritans did not like Jews. So you can imagine, as Jesus was telling this story, when a, a priest and Levite and the audience was thinking, surely one of them would stop. But then he mentions a Samaritan. It's like all the oxygen being sucked out of the room. A Samaritan, one of those low life. And he's telling us, that's your neighbor. In other words, everyone is our neighbor. Humanity is our neighbor. Not just our neighbor literally across the street or next to us, but anybody we encounter is our neighbor. And we are to demonstrate and to live out the love of God and show them. You want, to, you want people to know that God is real? Then love people the way God does. And as this text is pointed out in 1 John chapter 4, you cannot do that unless you have the Holy Spirit. So in order to do that, you have to give your life to Christ. Let him come in and change your heart. And through that, you can demonstrate this love of God. Jesus' love is a fearless love that calls and enables us to cross the borders, to tear down barriers, to reach out above disagreements. The, the fear that is driven out by love is the fear within ourselves. Love overcame the fear of another who may not look like us or sound like us or saying the same perspective or experience of us. First John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Reaching across the divide may begin in your family or community. Jesus calls us together into his loving presence and invites us to make room for all, whether we think they deserve it or not. We are to demonstrate his love. Invite them to know him, regardless of what we may think of them. There's only one righteous judge, and you or I are not it. See, there's humility in love, a willingness to put someone first. Sometimes love means taking the simple step of building that bridge as a gesture or invitation, a willingness to listen and not defend, to see others as equally loved by God. Welcome them to his presence, equally drawn and propelled out of his miraculous, divine, all-consuming love. This is God's love. This is the gift of Christmas. This is the heart of Christmas. As we rapidly are approaching Christmas Day, I invite and challenge all of us to rediscover Christmas by rediscovering the overwhelming, all-encompassing, all-welcoming love I'm sorry about the interruption from earlier. I hope you can still see this. I will post it on our website. Uh, still learning uh, 
lot different home than what we have the abilities at the church building. But remember, if you want to experience love, perfect love, if you haven't experienced the love of God, if you've never given your life to Christ now, you will experience an unconditional love. And as that love flows into your life, to cast out all fear. We as Christians at this time in this moment, especially in 2020, you know, even the seculars do, the seculars theater, right, sometimes, what the world needs is love, but not just any love, not the love as the world defines it, but love as God defines it. How did God define his love? Going back to 1 John chapter 4, that God loved us, that he sent his son into the world so that we might live through Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I pray for anyone who is watching. I pray, dear God, you wrap your arms of love and peace around each one. Pull them close to your side. Father, we come. We thank you for your great gift of love. May we demonstrate that love in our lives, to our family members, to our friends, to our neighbors, to everyone we come in contact with. And now may Christ drill your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. I'll see you next week. If you need anything, give me a call, give me a text, send me a message. Love you guys.